We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Uh, tonight we lead off our 2014 author event calendar. And if you're going to have a leadoff man, you may as well have a leadoff man. So we have the preeminent sports economist in the country uh, with us tonight. His book, Hot Off the Press, which is, uh, on a night like this, anything hot off the press sounds good. Uh, it's titled, The Sabermetric Revolution, Assessing the Growth of Analytics in Baseball, uh, by the, uh, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. So please join me as we say welcome home to Andrew Zimbalist. Thanks, thank you, Andrew. And uh, one of the the only benefit to this polar vortex that we've had is that it's been so quiet in the clubhouse that nobody had walked in last week for a couple of days. So I had the good chance to sit at my desk in the back and read this book, which is really fantastic. Uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. You did a terrific thank job. Thank you. And uh, this is someone who. Uh, did not do well at economics at uh, NYU. I, talking about me or you? No, that's me. Oh, okay. Definitely not you. All I know is I enjoyed Paul Samuelson's uh, cover artwork more than I understood anything in the book. Uh, and you made this extremely easy to understand. Uh, so I think uh, what we'll do is we'll just we're going to have a discussion. We have a very intelligent and uh, uh, devoted audience tonight, so I want to make sure everybody has a chance to ask questions. Uh, what I'd like to do, though, if you don't mind, is if I could start you off by just asking you to define sabermetrics, mainly for the people who are listening to the podcast who may not know, that would be helpful. Sure. So sabermetrics, as I bet most of you know, is, is a term that Bill James invented uh, a couple of decades ago, and it, its origin is from the Society of American Baseball Research, S-A-B-R, Bill put an E between the B and the R and added metrics, and that's that's the word. So what does it refer to? It refers to the use of statistical analysis to understand and evaluate player performance, team strategy, and front office strategy. Okay, and then what I'd like to do uh, to get us really going is... Uh, in a nod to Carlito's way, where they pretty much gave you the ending in the start of the movie, uh, but as a terrific filmmaker, he was able to then make it fascinating. So hopefully, we'll, we're, I'm going to try to do the same thing. But oh, okay. your last paragraph of the book, I would like to start with, actually, okay. mainly because I think there's this uh, misconception out there, which ties in with Moneyball, which we'll get to in a second, that people think sabermetrics... If you're into sabermetrics, you're completely against scouting or vice versa. So the final paragraph of Andrew's book is, while Michael Lewis emphasizes the conflict between scouts and sabermetricians, smart baseball executives today know that there is no reason to tie one hand behind their backs. There is no sense in arbitrarily limiting the amount of information you gather. The trick is to parse and process the information effectively a lesson that all companies have to learn. And in the preface, you talk, you start right away about, and then getting into it in the first chapter, about Moneyball. Yeah. And the, uh, you set the record straight a little bit on the book and the movie. 
and if you could just maybe take us through, start start with that. Sure. So let me, if, if I could, uh, say that I didn't write the book by myself. I wrote it with Benjamin Balmer, or Ben Balmer, who for eight years was the chief sabermetrician for the New York Mets and uh, got a PhD while he was doing that at, at, here in New York at CUNY and got a job two years ago at Smith College teaching math. So he and I wrote the book together. Uh, and so I appreciate your references to me as the author, but I'm just one of them. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, you know, the book Moneyball, um, I think, is a, is a very important book in baseball history. Um, it served the function of catalyzing the use of sabermetrics in baseball. Uh, it popularized and, and made acceptable the hiring of statistical analysts in, in baseball's front offices. It dramatized the success of, of, of the Oakland A's in 2002. Um, and it, it basically got all of the te- today there are 26 teams by my count that are practicing sabermetrics but I think that whatever else one could say about the book Moneyball it catalyzed that it accelerated that development um, I'm not sure that other than it being a wonderful story and, and Michael Lewis is a great storyteller uh, so I'm, other than those two things I'm not sure that you can or at least I would want to say very much positive about the book because I think it, it misrepresents the historical genesis of the use of statistical analysis in baseball. I think it misrepresents what was happening to the A's in 2002. It misrepresents the draft. It misrepresents sabermetrics by, by having him characterize Billy Bean as uh, somebody who thought that, that statistical analysis told us that when you do an amateur draft, you should only pick college players. You shouldn't pick high school players. It mischaracterizes Billy Bean when uh, he says that um, you should never bunt or that you should never steal. Uh, it mischaracterizes the, the players that he talks about. Uh, he, he talks about a pitcher by the name of uh, Chad Bradford. He, he, he has a sentence or two for Hudson and, and Zito and Mulder. He does. He has a sentence or two for each of them. He has a whole paragraph on Chad Bradford. Bradford, you might remember, was a submarine pitcher, and he talks about Bradford's upbringing and his uh, uh, family situation, so on and so forth, and talks about how nobody would believe he'd ever be a major league pitcher, and then he comes out and he says, Bradford threw the ball 84 miles an hour, but he says that Bradford's delivery was such, because he was a submariner, that it actually appeared to the batters is a 94-mile-an-hour fastball. He said because he was a submariner, when he delivered the ball, his hand was so much closer to home plate that even though the speed was 84, in terms of the amount of time that the batters had to swing at it, it was a 94-mile-an-hour fastball. So think about this. This is the guy who is interpreting the, the introduction of statistics into Major League Baseball for us, Michael Lewis, who made this comment. So think about what that comment means. If the fastball goes from 84 miles an hour to 94 miles an hour, then it's a 12-plus percent increase in speed. Uh, That suggests that the pitcher's mound or his hand release must have been 12 percent closer than 60 feet 
six inches. 12% of 60 feet six inches is longer than Jack O'Neill's body length. It's about seven, almost seven feet three inches. It's, an, it's patently absurd that that, that could happen. And I, I, I threw that out with some detail because I think it's indicative of, of the way he butchers statistics and the way he, he butchers uh, the history of the use of statistics in baseball. So the, the book begins with kind of trying to clearing the, the, the debris out of the air. Uh, it's a talk we talk about about the book. We also talk about the movie, which of course is movies or want to do distorts reality still further. Uh, and then we launch into into the gist. We we talk about uh, how sabermetrics has has proceeded through American front offices. How many teams practiced it in 2003? How many in 2007? How many do it today? What is it that they do when they practice it? Uh, then we have a couple of chapters that introduces people as kind of a basic primer on, on fundamental sabermetric principles. Uh, then we have a chapter called The Moneyball Diaspora that, that looks at the introduction of analytics or statistical analysis for the other, other sports, basketball, football, hockey, soccer. Uh, then, then there's a chapter on the use of statistical analytics for understanding the business of baseball. And, and, and then we conclude with turning the table on, on sabermetricians. So sabermetricians, as, as we know them, uh, evaluate player performance. They're evaluating others all the time. And so we, we turn the tables on them and we try to evaluate sabermetrics using statistical indexes to see how sabermetrically oriented or what we call saber intensity each team has been. And then we correlate that index of saber intensity with team performance after subtracting out the uh, the impact that team payroll has on team performance. So we look at those things together at the end of the book and make some conclusions about um, how, how productive or lack of uh, productivity there is in, in sabermetrics. So that's, you only asked me to talk about the first chapter, but too bad. I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm a professor, you know, as long as the door is closed, I talk for an hour and 20 minutes and then I shut up. So that was perfect. Right. That was perfect. So if I, uh, there's a great table in here which touches upon something that you mentioned, that 26 of the 30 teams are practicing analytics in some method. So I know people are going to say, who are the four teams? So I just want to pick those from your chart, just so people know, and then we can get off them. But uh, it's a range of quality to dreck, as they say. Uh, Atlanta, Colorado, Miami, and Philadelphia are the four teams that... As you write, teams with no apparent analytical presence. Putting those aside for a second, of the 26 remaining teams... Other than Jeffrey Luria, who's in psychoanalysis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's that's the, in, the, in the appendix, I believe. Uh, what distinguishes one front office from another of the, let's say, the 26 teams? Or, or I guess really what I'm asking is... So now there's this uh, information out there. 26 teams, in theory, are dealing with information. Of the top teams that, that are really heavily into it, Tampa, Cleveland, the Yankees, Boston, the Mets. Again, there's quite a difference of, of results, and, I, and this is as a Mets fan. Uh, what's really distinguishing one from the other at this point? Well, I think one of the things that distinguishes them is if you if you look at the Tampa Bay Rays, they've got probably eight, nine, or ten people who are in their analytics department, and they've got some people who are doing programming. Uh, 
Uh, and they've got some people who are doing what most of us would regard as standard, uh, standard, sab- standard sabermetrics, and they've got some people who are uh, using videos or an- analyzing videos. Uh, so it's a very large department. They recognize that there's, there's a lot there. They recognize that the stuff is all integrated and related to each other. Um, they have a guy, Andrew Friedman, who's the head of the baseball operations there, who comes from Wall Street and has a very analytic, a very analytic bent. Um, and and the, the, the culture of, of the A's is such that when, when Andrew Friedman and his team have an insight and they think something should be done, then there's a dedication to doing it. I think the Rays, right? Did I not say the Rays? Did I say the, the A's? Rays, sorry, yeah. So th- th- there's a dedication to doing it, and it does get done. Um, I think it's also important to, and, and the A's are similar. The A's are similar in that regard. But you know, one of the things that's characterized Billy Bean, and by the way, even though I, I critique how how Lewis treats Bean, I'm a great admirer of this. I think he's brilliant, uh, and I I, th- I think that uh, he he deserves to be singled out as a pioneer in in this area. But you know. If, if you talk to Billy, what he says to you is that the, the use of numbers to analyze performance and to analyze strategy is a, a relatively modest part of what they do when, when they're making those organizational decisions. They use, a lot of, they use a lot of video. They spend a lot of time these days trying to understand the players' makeups. Uh, they, have, they have the video now analysts and the statistical analysts working side by side together, which they did, by the way, back in 2002 also. Uh, and 2002 is n- is not one of the one of the things that's interesting is that 2002 is not the year that things began to change in the Oakland A's, and it's not the year if you look at statistics like on base percentage that that goes highest. In fact, it goes lower, substantially lower in 2002 for the A's relative to 2001 or relative even to 1999. So it's another thing that's that's misrepresented. But I, I think it, there, there, there's a culture of saying. How can we figure out something that nobody else has figured out? It doesn't have to be with a number. It could be because they're, they're spending more time trying to understand the player's emotional makeup um, than other teams are. Uh, and indeed, one of the things that I think Billy Bean recognized early on when all of his attention started getting lavished on on-base percentage through the movie, through the book, and, and later the movie, is that if all the teams start piling on, all the teams say, oh, we've got to emphasize on-base percentage, guess what happens? One of, one of the, the great insights for Billy Bean was not just simply that on-base percentage was important. Alan Roth, who worked for Branch Rookie in the 1940s in the Brooklyn Dodgers, he knew that too. One of the things that, that was distinguishing about the way Bean applied that knowledge was that not only was it important, but that it was a characteristic or an attribute that was undervalued. Other teams were not appropriately valuing it. But so along comes the book, and guess what? Everybody says we've got to value on base percentage, we've got to b- value the walk rate of a player, and the marketplace evaluation went up so fast that now it's overvalued. So what did Billy Bean do? Billy Bean didn't stick around and say, by golly, I'm going to keep on emphasizing on base percentage. He kind of threw that out and started finding something else. And that's, what, that's the instruction that he gives. So I think that, that you know, one of the things that, that characterizes the successful practitioners, the teams that are most successfully practic- practicing sabermetrics, is an innovative and creative spirit, and it's intelligence. If you think about it in, in other walks of life, uh, 
when you introduce a novel, a creative idea, a novel way of doing things, people who are self-confident, who, who are intelligent enough and feel confident in their intelligence, they welcome that. They say, oh, that's interesting. Let's, let's, let's pursue it. Let's dig down. But if you're not particularly intelligent and you're insecure in your knowledge of something and you see something new, right away it's a threat and you push it away. So I think that you know one of the things that characterizes the successful front offices is you've got a lot of smart people in those offices. So then uh, the only my remaining question on this particular table is putting aside Jeffrey Loria and even Colorado with their wacky pitching rotation and pitch counts or whatever they were doing. Uh, it leaves Atlanta and Philadelphia. Is the decision not to get into analytics really, is it from the owner down or, or where does that come from? At this point, I think it's from the owner down. Uh, yeah, I mean, Walt, Walt Jockety was in St. Louis, and, and the DeWitts, uh, Bill DeWitt and Bill DeWitt Jr., um, wanted to move in the sabermetric direction, and Jockety didn't get along with them, and he left. Um, and they they have they have a new guy there who's terrific and very involved uh, with statistical analytics. So yes, I, I think it's primarily the owner, but sometimes a GM can go to the owner and say, we have to do things a little bit differently and I want to hire somebody in this area. By the way, you know, it's, it's beginning to change now, but it, five years ago, you can hire a sabermetrician, somebody who maybe majored in statistics or economics and has a BA degree and nothing more. You could hire one of those people for forty or fifty or $60,000. Uh, so you could, you, you, you could you know, hire a team Hire three of these guys. It costs you one hundred fifty thousand um, dollars. You don't need sabermetrics to be very productive if that's all your. That's one third of the minimum. It's less than one one third of the minimum salary in Major League Baseball for a player now, which is five hundred thousand um, dollars. But I, I I think and one of the things that we we find in the book is that indeed there there is pretty strong statistical evidence that sabermetrics does the application of sabermetric insights does indeed enhance performance. Uh, in, in, at, at the end of the book, I'll give you one of our punchlines. I think one can reasonably construct a statistical argument that says that those teams were that were 10% more sabermetrically oriented than the average in the league between 2000 and, and 2012, 10% more uh, would... would uh, on average, have 4.5 more wins per year. So that's using sabermetric jingo. That's or lingo. It's it's a, a war of 4.5. Uh, each on average, each win is roughly worth. It varies a lot from city to city and win percentage to win percentage. But on average, it's about five million dollars. So you're, you're looking you're looking at a 20 million dollar plus benefit from the sabermetric orientation. And until recently, that cost you $150,000. That's a pretty good rate of return, right? <laughs> uh, I, what's happened to, to sabermetrics is that the amount of data that's involved with, with big data, uh, and I was, I was with Bloomberg yesterday with, with Bill Squadron, who runs their, uh, their analytics department. It's unbelievable how much data there is, and, and, and it's going to multiply several fold in the coming, coming months and years. So you've got to hire people who understand how to work with big data, uh, and you've got to hire people who know how to parse through that data and, and pick out what's important, and then also people who can analyze it. And part of the problem today is that everybody's doing except four teams, everybody's doing it. So how do you get a leg up on, on the next guy? And one of the areas, or, or a couple of the areas where 
that is being used, which I thought I saw, thought was fascinating in the book, is uh, in strategies and maybe where some of this perception has changed over time. Uh, with platooning, uh, clutch hitting, and sacrifice bunting. Yeah. If you could just speak a little about that. So platooning is actually something that um, a, a statistical analyst uh, who wrote about baseball in, in the 1940s and 50s, George, George Lindsay, um, he, he wrote some articles in, what was it called? I'm not sure what his journal it was called, but uh, it, it was, it's, it's a fairly well-known uh, journal. He wrote some, some articles where he was looking at, at platooning, and he, he found indeed that there's something like a 20% boost in batting average when you face a pitcher from the, from the opposite side, throwing from the opposite side. Uh, the, the numbers that Ben and I cranked out looking at OPS, not batting average, were that on average lefties batting against right-handed pitchers had 60 points higher in, in, in OPS uh, than lefties batting against left-handed pitchers, and righties batting against left-handed pitchers had a 40%, I'm sorry, 40-point higher OPS than righties batting, batting against right-hand pitchers. So it was very clear that you know there, anybody who bothered to look at the evidence, it's been around for a long time, Lindsay wrote about it, some people knew about Lindsay, and then you had people like uh, Earl Weaver, who... Uh, I, I had the good fortune to, to talk to for a while, a few months before he passed away. And Weaver explained that he was always a minor league player. He never made it to the majors. Uh, and, he, he found, and he wasn't terribly good as a minor leaguer, at least as he describes it. He said he found himself very, to be very successful against some of the best pitchers in the minor leagues. His, his, his best hitting teammates wouldn't be able to touch these pitchers. And Weaver would get up there and he'd have a field day. On the other hand, Weaver said the weakest pitchers, very often he couldn't hit at all. And most pitchers he couldn't hit at all. <laughs> so he, he, you know, he, what he finally said to himself was, this is very idiosyncratic. You know, it's arm angle matters, feeling comfortable matters, all these things matter. And one of the things that he noticed was that, that this platooning effect was important. And so he comes, he comes and he's, he's manager of, uh, of the Orioles, and he starts platooning players. And he has people in the front office running down every inning with, with three-by-five cards uh, saying that this person hits this, this per person on the Orioles bench, hits that guy pretty well, doesn't hit that guy well. So he's doing this. It's rudimentary, but it's, it's insightful and it's creative and innovative. He's doing this analysis. Uh, Charles Steinberg, who's, who's uh, the PR director for the Red Sox and has been for a long time, he's a brilliant man, um, He's been following Larry Lucchino around. He started off as the dentist for the Baltimore Orioles in, in the 1980s, and they, they, they liked his comments so much about relating to the community that they made him the PR director at the Orioles. He went, he went with Larry to, um, to San Diego, and he's been in Boston with a very small interlude in between. Anyway, Steinberg was one of the guys who'd run from the front office with his cards, three-by-five cards, down to the dugout and give them to, to Earl Weaver. Uh, so that's the platooning effect. I mean, it doesn't work for all players, uh, but on average it works. And it works, it works in a fairly dramatic way. Bunting. Um, so one... The, the, the early sabermetric wisdom on bunting was that you don't do it because you're giving up and out. If, by the way, if it works, right, because sometimes you sacrifice bunting, you strike out, and it does, or you pop out or whatever, and it doesn't work at all. But when you sacrifice and it works... You're giving up and out. Uh, and giving up and out is, is bad news. You only get three per inning. And the, 
advantage you get by having a player on second base rather than at first base isn't isn't greater than the disadvantage you get by yielding an out. And on, so on average, the sabermetrician says don't bunt. That's fine on average, and you can you know you can confirm that by by using run expectancy matrices, or you can use linear weights and confirm that. The problem is that what's true on average isn't necessarily true in every circumstance, right? Uh, one of the one of the problems with the early analysis of, of bunting was that they were looking at the average number of runs that were scored in an inning when you sacrifice somebody with one out or uh, with no outs or with one out. What what happens to the average number of runs you score per inning? And it goes down. But if you're in the eighth inning or the ninth inning in a close game. You're not necessarily interested in maximizing when you make a strategic decision. You're not necessarily interested in maximizing the number of runs you're going to score for the whole game. You're interested in getting one run across the plate so you can go up by a run and you can bring in Mariano Rivera. Or you're interested in getting one run across the plate so you can tie the game and go into extra innings. You're not really thinking about, I'd rather have eight runs than seven runs or whatever. Uh, so that's one of the areas in which one would have to modify the, the, the dictum that you don't bunt. But of course, there are others too, because pitchers, and if we're talking about the National League, pitchers probably aren't going to be successful when they hit. Um, and it, so it depends on whether who's up, how, what's the batting average of the person who's up, and how fast is the runner on first base? And could he, if we didn't sacrifice bunt, what's the chance that he can steal a base? And who's up after the guy who's bunting? I mean, there are all sorts of questions like, do you have Mariano Rivera? Rivera? In the bullpen, or do you have David Robertson in the bullpen, or do you have somebody else in the bullpen who's going to come in and, and shut the other team down? So it turns out when you start going through all of the permutations and the details that bunting sometimes makes sense. And it's roughly the same thing with stealing. Um, the, the, you know, the early sabermetric wisdom was don't steal because you could potentially you're giving, up, you're giving up and out when you go to second base. Uh, it turns out that if you uh, if you can steal at roughly successfully steal a base at roughly sixty seven percent rate of success two thirds of the time you're successful uh, then that's more or less break even and if you if you can steal at seventy percent or eighty percent then it's more than break even but again it will depend upon the, the details of the circumstance of the game so a lot of the sabermetric wisdom that was around ten years ago has has been nuanced and and. Uh, made it more adaptable to different different game circumstances. And uh, some of these strategies, the flip side, for example, with bunting, and this is taking it to an extreme, but uh, when I would watch Keith Hernandez play first base, he was so amazing defensively. He took away a manager, even if a manager wanted to bunt, sometimes he had to change his strategy because Keith Hernandez was going to take away that bunt from him, so he wouldn't even attempt it. Sure, there you go, All right. So where, where, defensively, where are we with sabermetrics? I don't think we're anywhere. Uh, I, we, have, we, have a lot of we have a lot of measurements, primarily UZR, but, you know, when, when Derek Jeter is, is in the bottom 10% of UZR one year and the next year he's in the top 10%, you have to question what is, what is UCR measuring? Are you measuring a skill when there's so much variance from one year to the next year? Um, what are these initials, UCR? What does it stand for? Yeah. I'm not sure what it stands Ultimate for. Zone. Uh, Ultimate zone rating. Thank you. Thank you. Ultimate. Ultimate zone rating. So what they're trying to do with UCR is to take advantage of, of an insight uh, that I, I guess we can attribute in modern times to Bill James, which is that the traditional, the con historical measurement of fielding is is uh, fielding percentage, 
And what that's fundamentally measuring is when a ball's hit pretty much right at you, whether or not you catch it and throw it to first base and get the guy out or not. And if, if either the ball hits your glove and bounces out, or the, you're Steve Saxon, it goes in your glove and you throw it into the stands, uh, and, the, and the, guy is, the guy isn't out, um, then that's an error, and that's what's being measured. And this, this is a concept that goes back as introduced in the late, late 19th century, introduced at a time when the fielders basically had uh, a golfer's glove on their left hand, and not much more than a golfer's glove. Uh, and so it was a big deal. It was a big deal. If somebody hit a nice hard line uh, ground ball at you that you, you actually caught it and, and made the play. Um, but th- that doesn't tell you anything at all, that measurement, or basically very, very little about the player's ability to anticipate where the ball's going to hit, be hit, uh, get a good jump once the ball is hit, and then get to the ball to run fast enough to the place where it's hit, and then to have enough balance when you're running and you, you, you catch the ball to, to convert the play. Uh, and, and so fielding percentage was increasingly seen as a very limited measurement of somebody's fielding prowess, somebody's field, fielding contribution. Um, and uh, Bill James de- developed this, this notion of uh, defensive efficiency rating, which was basically not whether when the ball was hit to you did you convert it into an out, but when the ball was hit anywhere, was it converted into an out or not. The, deficient, the, the DER rating, the defensive efficiency rating, um, is something that applies pretty nicely to a team, but it doesn't apply to an individual so much. And so some individuals, like Michael Lickman and others, have de- tried to develop uh, concepts like, like the ultimate zone rating, or UZR, that attempts to measure these things about a player's ability to move laterally and move back and forth uh, to see what their range is. Uh, I, so I think that there, it's a nice idea, but I think the way it's been implemented is, is very unsatisfying for a number of reasons. One reason is that uh, we haven't had enough information available yet. We're starting to get it now with, with the field, field effects. But we haven't had enough information so that we can distinguish, each, other than saying a ball was hit slowly, medium, hard, or fast, we haven't, those are three categories, we don't know what the muzzle speed was off the bat. Uh, we don't know how many hops the ball took. Uh, we don't know if the infield was slippery or not. We don't know if the guy who's playing shortstop was having to lean towards second if there was a guy leading off second base or not. We don't know whether Elliot, uh, whether Greg Maddox was pitching and he threw the ball exactly to where the catcher had his glove, which enabled the shortstop to get a jump on it or not. There's, and I can go on and on. There's a lot of stuff that, that we don't know when we say, here's a, player's, here's a player's UZR. And then they divide the field into these bins, uh, and you're supposed to be able to say, well... If a guy's playing a typical shortstop position and the ball's hit into bin 73, which you know might be whatever, 15 feet from there, um, 80% of the time the shortstop can get that ball if it's hit into bin number 83 or whatever it is. Uh, but here, here again, we don't, we don't know whether the ball was a line drive, whether it was a one hopper, whether it was a five hopper, whether they were playing on artificial turf or rather playing on regular grass, whether the grass was whether or not, whether the shortstop started in the traditional position, the shortstop's player, maybe there was a shift. And one of the things that changes UZR is people are shifting all the time these days, particularly the Rays, and I think that's been a major, major benefit for them. So there are all sorts of issues about we just don't have enough information about what's happened on a play or the circumstances of the play to be able to say that the UZR means very much. 
Uh, if you look at, I, get, I threw out the Derek Jeter example, there are lots of others, but if you look at a player's UZR in year one, and then you compare it to his UZR in year two, what, what you would want, if you're measuring a player's skill, you would expect that year one and year two, two would be pretty close to each other, right? Well, it turns out, and different people have done this, uh, it turns out that the, the UZR from year, year one to year two for all of the players who have played over the last 20 years or, or so, a certain number of innings, is about 0.4. The correlation is about 0.4. And what that means is that you explain 16% of a player's UZR in year two when you look at his UZR in year one. And which suggests there's a lot of randomness there. So that's a problem with UZR, but... Uh, to, to, to Ben and my way of thinking, there's still a larger problem with UZR, and it's a problem that adheres to many statistics. War, war is one of them. War is, is WAR, it's wins above replacement player. It's supposed to be kind of an ultimate comprehensive measure of how productive a player is. And, and that problem is that these are now proprietary metrics. The people who generate these are selling their, their metrics to teams or they might be selling them to television stations. They're making money off of it. Uh, and because they're proprietary, and by the way, there are a lot of charlatans out there who are practicing sabermetrics and consulting and selling their services uh, who always claim it's every, everything is proprietary and they can't tell us how they're, <laughs> how they're doing it. Um, and that, that's true, I think, of lots of fads. You know, you always get, oh, there's a fad that you can, can't, you can make money doing this, so let's dress ourselves up as, as doing this. Um, but the, there's, a, there's a real problem is that since it's proprietary, it's a black box. They'll tell us, oh, yeah, well, we have bins and, and you know, we, we can see if the balls hit slow, medium, or fast. So they give us a few things. But at the end of the day, the, the numbers they're using to feed into their algorithms, into their formulae, uh, and how they, they, how they weight all these different numbers, they don't tell us because it's proprietary. Uh, and as long as it's a black box, it doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense. It doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense. And you can see if you go down, if you know, if you if you go to Fangraphs and take a look at, take a look at what happens to a player's statistic over time, or go to Baseball Reference, or go to go to go to Baseball Prospectus. Look at, I, you know, these guys are smart. They're doing good work. But for us to say, okay, we embrace that idea. This is not like on base percentage. We all know what on base percentage is, right? We all know what a home run is. But we don't know. We don't know what's getting. What, what is it that's in that UZR? Where did the numbers come from? How are they put together? That's the same thing with war. It's proprietary. Fangraphs has got a war. Baseball Prospectus has got a war. Baseball Reference com has got a war. They all have different measurements. You're a Mets fan, so one of the things you, you may have noticed, we, 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 we show for David Wright, the third baseman for the Mets, we show the, the, the three measurements from these three outfits about uh, David Wright, uh, and it's broken down into different components. His batting, his fielding, uh, his, his base running, and so on. And if you look at it, all of them come out, they all have, they all have Wright coming out somewhere, somewhere with the war of around seven. I think that, that for this particular year, some were 6.8, one was 7.1, but they're all pretty close. It looks like, oh, this is pretty consistent. They're doing the same thing. But then if you break it down, you see that one of them has got him as a negative fielder, and the other one's got him as a very positive fielder. And one of them's got him as a negative base runner, and the other's got a very positive base runner. Uh, so you have to, you have to, you simply have to. If we're going to, if we're going to uh, accept these 
these estimates and these numbers and these concepts, we have to know what's there, and we don't right now. That's a problem. And by the way, and this gentleman has his hand up, so let me just say one more thing about it. And, uh, and We're going to get to questions in a moment. Uh, one of the things that's interesting when, when you look across the sports is that in baseball, we've had this development, this maturation of statistical analysis that goes back to, uh, to the 1970s and Bill James is writing. It goes back further, but the, the burgeoning of the internet and the, the, the free agency era, which starts in 1977, where the salaries are going way up, so it's, now it's more important than ever to really understand what you're paying for. Uh, we had this period, started with Bill James, where sabermetricians were communicating with each other by telephone, by email, uh, by blogs, and so on, that went basically from the late 70s, mid or late 70s up until around 2000. And all of the people who were participating in this exchange were doing it because there was an intellectual love of the game and intellectual love and curiosity about the information that they were sharing with each other. And then when it gets incorporated into the front offices gradually after 2000, although there was some incorporation earlier, when, when the momentum, when the snowball effect really starts going after 2000, all of a sudden there are people who want to make some money off of this. They're producing valuable pieces of information after all, and then it, it all turns in and it becomes proprietary. If you think about uh, statistical the introduction of statistical analytics in the other sports, uh, they don't benefit from a couple of decades of of uh, open free exchange. It's almost immediately, because it really all happens after Moneyball. Uh, and, and it's all at a time period when, and the salaries are very high and, and, and there's a lot of big data processing ability out there. So it all gets absorbed almost immediately, I'm exaggerating a little bit, almost immediately into this proprietary black box environment. Uh, and I think it's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why why statistical analytics is, is less developed in, in the other sports. The other major reason, reason of course, is those, those, those other sports are very continuous in their production function. Uh, whereas baseball is very discreet. Uh, when, when you're a batter, might depend a little bit. Evidence isn't so clear who's batting after you and other things. But pretty much it's you against the pitcher. And if you're a good batter, you're going to do pretty well. It's not true for a quarter, quarterback in football, right? Quarterback in football needs a good line, needs some good ends, maybe needs a coach to design the plays well. Um, so there's all this interdependence that goes on, not only in football, but in all the other sports, makes it much harder to isolate meaningful statistics for how good each player is. But baseball, both because of this maturation period of a couple of decades of statistical analysis and because of the nature of the sport, it has lent itself to the, the development of, of sabermetric analysis. Sorry I went on too long. Go no, ahead. perfect. So I think, I know you, you're ready with some questions, so let you can get going. Okay. Well, first of all, I want to say that I'm pleased to apply your book, and I will be buying your book, but I also want to address people's questions about defense, because I actually wrote a book about defense where I have an open source system using statistical inference, published three years ago, reviewed in the Wall Street Journal, and, it, and the book is Wizardry. So I'm, so I'm a little plug for Wizardry, but to get to your specific points about fielding, there is now an open source, like, quasi-linear ways type of metric for, for defense, and, and I do agree with you that it's unfortunate that these things like UCR are based upon proprietary data, um, but my own studies suggest that um, that my open source system and others' open source systems as well do have a fairly decent correlation with the published output of those, of those systems. And also, I think it's important to recognize, I agree with you, that 
any particular feeling of that, right, there's there's hundreds of variables that, that could affect it. But I think the law, law of large numbers starts to take effect over the course of the season, and if you basically you know, identify the most important parameters, like the ball, speed of the ball, where it was hit, blah, 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 that uh, you're going to get a pretty decent answer. And I think the problem has been That's that right. a lot of these, these proprietary systems have not been very good at actually locating where the ball landed. I wrote some articles about that as well, blah, blah, blah. So the last, and the last point I want to make tonight is that is that there's a lot of randomness in fielding outcomes, but there's also surprisingly a lot of randomness in hitting outcomes, meaning that if you take just the portion of your batting performance that involves not a strikeout, not a walk, and not a home run, the year-to-year -year correlation in your performance in terms of just hitting singles, doubles, and triples in the field has roughly the same level of year-to-year -year correlation as your fielding, as, as one's fielding performance is, as measured by my system. Well, I'm not sure what your last statement. Can you run, run your last three sentences by? Okay, the last, the last sentence I'm saying is that there is a lot of randomness in, in the, and, and imprecision in the evaluation of fielding. And as you suggested, one of the, the signs of that is that there's a relatively modest correlation year-to-year -year right. in, the, in the performance in fielding. Right. But interestingly, if you look at just the subset of batting performance that relates to balls hit into the field. So, so BABIP, you're talking about exactly, the correlation of BABIP exactly, from one year to the next. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Is actually surprisingly low as well. Yeah, very low. And, and so I guess what I'm saying is if, if people have been willing to sort of consider the components of BABIP as part of the record, like in other words, you hit this, this, is, this happened, we're going to give you full credit for whether it's in your batting average or your whatever, that people should be more comfortable accepting these, some of the, the fielding metrics because they're basically not any less fuzzy or subject to randomness as, as things we've trusted and basically always incorporated in our evaluation. Well, I disagree with you about that. I mean, I think that BABIP is, is a fundamentally different concept measuring something that we, we think is rather random uh, versus in fielding we're trying to measure a skill and the skill, shouldn't be, the skill should be correlated from one year to the next. Right, I guess the issue is, well, we don't get too technical here, but basically there's um, a lot of what we call binomial ran uh, mm -hmm. random variation in, in, all, in all these kinds of outputs, these kinds of things. I think that there's an inherent randomness as to whether your hit drops in for a hit this year or whether it got caught. Right. You know? And right. likewise, I think there is some randomness about whether, you know, the ball that, you know, the, the balls you got in one year were. were, were Fairly distributed or, or not. So I'll I don't know. I mean, I, 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 we should talk more, but it sounds to me like you're you're making an argument that un, undoes your first assertion, which is that uh, you're, it's it's very hard to measure fielding skill, and that the same randomness that adheres to Babbitt and fear, adheres to these measurements of fielding skills. But we should certainly continue. Yeah. Yeah. Jay. It should be noted, however, respectfully, that ball and play average Babbitt is a reflection of something that actually occurred, that there's no actual uncertainty where it either fell in for a hit or it did not. The factors that contributed to whether or not it fell in for a hit may be somewhat random, but when, for instance, ultimate zone rating or defensive run save would say that, oh, well, this batter, or this fielder, rather, saved 10 runs, say, you're dealing entirely in, in, in hypothetical yes. runs. Yes. So I think my issue with, with your argument is that whereas BABIP is, is a measurement of something that most certainly did occur, D 
defensive metrics do not necessarily deal in that. So I'm not sure that they're... Which there. makes it, I think, hard. Where, where we're at right now with our ability to process data makes it hard to, in my mind, to say that I'm going to learn more about a fielder's ability by looking at some UZR number as opposed to watching him, looking at video evidence. I think that's right, and that's why I said zero when somebody said, where are we at? I said, nowhere. Right. I don't think that we know more from numbers, whether it's UZR's system or, uh, or, or it's Stan Jensen. I can't remember his first name. Shane. Shane, thank you. Shane Jensen's system. I don't, I don't think we... And the advantage of which Jensen has done is at least he's, he's generated standard errors so that you can have a confident, uh, confidence interval, and which nobody does for any of these other things. But I, I just don't think at this point in time, if I'm a general manager, I'm going to put more stock in somebody's UZR or somebody else's something else uh, than I am in, in my scout saying, you know, and, and my watching the guy and seeing what he does. I, and that's where I think, not, that's not to say that we can't get there. And I, I think that field effects, pitch effects, and bat effects, and processing ability that we have will get us further along. I don't know how fast we're going to go, but at, at this point, in, in my view, we just don't know very much more than we used to know. Manish? So uh, I really appreciate everything you've said so far, especially about kind of bringing up the charlatans, kind of saying that we've got, you know, we know what we're talking about, listen to us, listen to us, but, you know, if I ask five people about war and I get five different answers, I used to consider myself a relatively intelligent man until metrics came around. I feel like it's <laughs> here, I swear to God, I don't understand 9% of what's being said tonight. And I think that's the frustrating <laughs> aspect to me is that, you know, you can explain batting average or on-base percentage or, you know, anything like that to a six-year-old male understand it. What you said about all the proprietary knowledge that's out there, do you think there's a danger right now with so many people using so many different types of, you know, uh, equations where we're now, I mean, we see a guy like Shin Chu Chu get paid whatever it was, $150 million plus, just because on-base seems to be a little bit higher. They've changed the dynamic of, of the game at this point, and we still don't fully understand war or UZR or et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, do you think we're ever going to get to a point? You said 10 years ago, we, we've become more nuanced now 10 years ago. From, right. from, do you think there's ever going to be a point where a dummy like me will be able to understand this in a one-minute sentence, where here's war, it's calculated X way, and there it is. That's, that's what war is. Will we ever get to that point, or is this a sabermetric and ever-evolving thing? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, for, first of all, I, I, I would contest your, your premise that you're a dummy because it was an intelligent question. And it's, it's actually, actually so intelligent that I don't think I'm intelligent enough to answer it. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that we're moving in an interesting direction. We're devoting a lot of resources. We have a lot of smart people. Increasingly, we've got people uh, with not masters in engineering rather than BAs or rather than former players who don't have a college education. We've got PhDs in statistics. Ben Balmer is one, but there are others. Um, so I, I think that we're moving in a direction that's going to enable us to refine a lot of this stuff. And in spite of the fact that, that uh, there's still there's a lot of proprietary uh, analysis going on out there, there's still a lot of people who are doing it in the public domain. Now, a lot of those people, it turns out, get pulled out of the public domain and plunked in front offices. And, and paid a nice salary, but no, I you know I'm relatively optimistic that we'll be making advances. But whether we're going to get to a point where everybody agrees on war and that it's fully understandable to you or me or the people who are announcing the baseball games, I maybe not. 
Maybe not. And, but maybe we don't need it to get there. Maybe all we need to do is have a general sense of what it is. If it's done right, then great. Uh, then we can all stand behind it. But I don't think we're there yet. Thank you. Ken? Yeah, the question I was going to ask Andrew is, you know, why, why do we necessarily have to have one definition of war? You know, what? You know, if there's more than one way to make a cake, like when you have more than one way to use, you know, measure a player's value, you know, use, and I, I think, you know, there's a fundamental difference between the baseball reference calculation and Van Graaff's calculation. Right. Van Graaff's is tied into UCR. Um, right. So I think that it, 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 it's, it's less precarious to have multiple definitions as long as people understand that they're different definitions and understand maybe something about why they're different. What's happening now, though, is that, and I, I and I, uh, I guess I applaud them for answers. We just say war, and and a lot of listeners who just listen to war, like it's being received. I think it's being received like this guy had thirty-seven home runs. Except that it's comprehensive. It's not just talking about his isolated power. It's talking about everything. Uh, and then it gets converted to take the war and multiply it by $4 million, and then, oh, this guy's worth $16 million. That's unrealistic. It's a misrepresentation, I think. And so that's what, that's what I find problematic. So but it's, like, but yeah, it's fine for people to disagree. It's fine to say, I think my war is better than yours. There's nothing wrong with that. It sounds like you want it broadcasters and such that, and media did a better job of presenting it and putting it in a proper context, then you have less objection to the actual concept of war. I don't have objection to the concept of war. I have objected to its, ob- objections to its implementation and and the fact that it gets used in misleading ways. Right, so your problem is with the usage, not with its existence. Uh, I, I, I think that um, I, I have a problem with its content as well as its usage. Um, until we understand what's what's behind it and, and how it's different from other implementations of war, then I think, yeah, it's, it's also a problem there. Um, is the problem with the use of war right now that we are so used to statistics being counting specific things? In, in reality, war is not a statistic. It's a framework. It's saying that if you take a person's contribution in batting, bat, the batting ones are pretty similar across all the different systems, and they're not actually very proprietary. It's mostly the defense. Right, right. Um, you take his value in batting, you take his value in base running, you take his value in fielding or pitching. You add those together, that's the player's value. Right. And it does get cited as a statistic. War is not a statistic. Uh, Fangraph's implementation of war, you can say, is a statistic. But... Um, I think that's the big, the big difference, is that war gets misrepresented as a statistic when in reality it's a framework and there are different implementations. Of yeah, the by the way, I, I didn't mention, I, I agree with what you said. Uh, another issue that I don't think has been adequately addressed is, so war stands for wins above replacement player, right? It's somebody who's... Um, Better than better than AAA, but not as good as the the, the bottom of, of major league players. It's kind of a four A 4A player rather than a AAA player, um, and we have precise measurements of, or people who do implementations of or pretend to have precise measurements of that. Like the, the average player is 22, uh, 22 games better than the replacement player, uh, and. Who is this replacement player? You know, if you you go and you look at these players who get brought up to, to fill in for a month, 
or how, however long you want to say, and you look at the distribution of their performance statistics, it's really broad. It's a really broad scope of, of, of people who are all being called 4A. They're all being called replacement players. So how do we, how do we get that? I think conceptually that's a problem. I mean, I like the idea if we could, and you know, there's an abstraction out there that says there's a replacement player and they're all relatively similar to each other, great. But it doesn't seem like they are. Um, Bradbury, John, is that his first name? Bradbury. Um, JC. JC, right. Yeah. So it's, it's, John is his first name, right? And then C is whatever. JC Bradbury, Hot Stove Economics, is that the book where he, he looks at that? I think he does an interesting job with it. Don't. I'm with Manesh that a lot of this is kind of new to me and, but one image I had when you were talking about the UCF and some of these factors that are that are on UCR you mean? Yeah, yeah okay. right. I think that's fighting championship or something <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking about you know, you ever watch a close boxing match? No <laughs> Don't watch sports boxing. Well, you know, in, in boxing, you know, they've got if if there's if the, someone doesn't win by knockout, you know, there's several judges, and each judge scores points right, on right, each round. Right, so right, yeah, right, it reminded that. me of that how it's kind of subjective. And then another image I had, you know, was of a fighter's ability to take a punch, which is completely individual as well. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to share those with you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Dave? To switch away from that, and I'll start the last chapter of your book. You mentioned taking away the weight from the statistical analysis of the larger payroll franchises. And I was a little confused by that as to how that's reflective of the statistics of a player, regardless of where they play, measured as a full season. Okay, so. Uh, so, so we, we know that what we're trying to do is to look at uh, how various new measurements that we have for that sabermetrically oriented measurements like OBP versus batting average. So one of the things we do, this is, maybe I just illustrate this. So one of the things, we have six different components of, of a sabermetric, um, uh, sabermetric framework for analyzing performance. We have six of them. So we, for, for on-base percentage, what we do is we say on-base percentage is the new statistic, batting average is the old statistic, we look at that ratio, and that's one of our components for Sabre intensity. I can give you more detail. But, uh, so now, now, now we have this, we have this com combined measurement of Sabre intensity, uh, and we want to see how does that affect win percentage, right? But we know that there are other things besides sabermetrics that determine win percentage. One of those things is payroll. Teams that have higher payroll have higher win percentages. So we want to take out the impact of, win, of payroll on win percentages. What we do is we run a regression of, of win percentage on payroll and payroll squared. That regression yields residuals. I don't know if you're following me or not. It, it yields residuals. Those residuals are the part of win percentage that's not explained by payroll. And then we, we, we run the residuals on our sabermetric intensity variable. So that's how do you account for a negative effect that a player who necessarily plays surrounded by a better cast of players is what you're essentially saying? No. I'm not sure I understand what you're saying. Okay. Uh, all right. Actually, uh, 
I don't understand payroll squared, but I do understand a clock. And unfortunately, we're pretty much at the end of our podcast time. So just to our podcast audience, I just want to say farewell. And the book, again, The Sabermetric Revolution, Assessing the Growth of Analytics in Baseball by Benjamin Baumer and Andrew Zimbalis, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press, just came out. Pick it up wherever you can. Thank you very much. Thank you.